This episode of Storylines is brought to you by Real Girls Media, a production company dedicated to fostering a deeper understanding of the world and the human spirit through the production of award-winning programs for a global market. Founded by Ava Carvinen, Real Girls' work has been seen in more than 100 film festivals worldwide and received more than 45 international awards. The company engages in smart and original entertainment delivered across multiple platforms, including television, theater, web, and mobile. For more information, visit realgirlsmedia.com. That's R-E-E-L girlsmedia.com. Hey, we just want to let you know that we talk about some big and important topics on this week's show, and some people may find parts of this conversation a little bit triggering. So please be advised. Now back to the show. Welcome to Storylines, a podcast brought to you by WIFTA, Women in Film and Television, Alberta. I'm your host, Sheena Rossiter. On this week's episode, there are real gaps in especially, you know, my generation and older around knowing the history of this place. We're in conversation with documentary filmmaker and academic Tasha Hubbard. And I saw the opportunity to mix my curiosity and how I felt compelled to learn more about Indigenous history, about my own family's history, and doing so in such a way that allows other people to learn along with me. Tasha is an award-winning Cree filmmaker. Her documentaries primarily focus on social issues faced by Indigenous people in Canada. In 2004, her first solo project, the documentary Two Worlds Colliding, won a Gemini Award. It looks at starlight tours, a practice where Saskatoon police would abandon Indigenous men in freezing winter conditions. As soon as I got outside, I seen two cops. And they must have thought I was the... I was the one causing the problems or something. And Tasha's most recent work, Nipa Wistamasawin, We Will Stand Up, tells the tragic story of the Colton Bushi case. When my brother was shot on August 9th, I was dancing at a powwow, and my cousin comes up to me before I dance with tears in her eyes, and she said that Coco had died. And has received positive reviews. It was named the Best Canadian Feature at the 2019 Hot Docs Film Festival, where it opened the festival and made its premiere. Most recently, it won Best Documentary Feature at the Canadian Screen Awards. Tasha, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. So you started your career in film and television as a background casting director for a CBC miniseries. What made you want to make the switch to documentaries? Well, I really enjoyed learning about the history, and that that was what brought me to that project in the first place is I had a degree. I'd been working in the arts community, but I didn't really know what I wanted to focus on. So working on the the miniseries Big Bear, I loved working on a crew. I loved being outside every day, the challenge, but mostly the history. It was something I thought a lot about what the gaps were in the history that I had learned growing up in small town Saskatchewan. The gap, of course, is learning the true history of Indigenous people and and their treatment. So I was pretty fascinated what I was able to learn on that. And uh, one of the producers of that film approached me and said, is this something you can see yourself doing? 
And would you like to learn how to make documentary films? And I just, yeah, that's exactly, I would love to do that. And I saw the opportunity to mix my curiosity and how I felt compelled to learn more about Indigenous history, about my own family's history, and doing so in such a way that allows other people to learn along with me. Your films cover really big topics. And in your first film, it covered what were known as Starlight Tours. How did you come up with the idea that you wanted to cover that topic? And how did you approach the National Film Board to do that? The documentary producer I was working with, Doug Cuthand, we had worked on projects together around the multi-generational effects of residential school and things like that. I wasn't necessarily looking for any specific story. I just was sort of responding to things I was thinking about and observing or that we would talk about. And uh, we heard about the story. We heard that this man had come forward. And I had heard rumblings around the death of late Lawrence Wagner through family connections and that things didn't sit right with the family, but what they were being told. We heard the news story on our way to another shoot. Good evening. Harsh allegations against two Saskatoon police officers. They're accused of mistreating a native man. And at the same time, an investigation is being launched into the mysterious deaths of two other Aboriginal men. And I said to Doug, you know, we should do something on this and someone should cover this because it looks like it's a deeper story than what's coming out in the media. He said, well, you should do it. It's time. I'd been working with him for a couple of years at this point. I'm like, okay. And I, I got on the phone and called some crew and I said, I can't be there because we were on our, we were already gone. I said, can you go down? There's a press conference happening in half an hour. Can you go down and get some footage and we'll see what happens. And I had worked with Doug on an NFB production the year before. And I had met Jerry Karpakavich, who is an NFB producer, Grada McRae, who was the executive producer. I approached Jerry, and he was in the process of retiring. And so he suggested I, I speak with Bonnie Thompson. Her and I started developing the film together. I wanted a, a real, you know, a supportive producer. I, I knew that with this being my first film, I would want that experience. I would want that support. I knew that it was going to be a controversial film. I knew that there would be a lot of political pressure. I thought it would be good to have the NFB behind me going into that as a young Indigenous filmmaker in her 20s, you know, not having made a film before, you know. <laughs> but, you know, in a way that worked to my advantage. I think it's one of those things where I, I wasn't taken seriously by some of the power brokers. You know, I never said anything that wasn't true. I always presented myself for what I was and what I was trying to do with that film. And they looked at me and, you know, I was 28 and looked 20. And they were like, oh, okay, little girl, we'll humor you. It was an interesting process, but I just felt in my gut there's so much here that isn't being said. That's what turned out to be the case. What was the the results of that film in terms of the impact that it had? What was the feedback that you had received from that film? And was it encouraging to continue on in your career doing solo projects? The film forced people to acknowledge that the myth and the image that's put forward by the legal system, the assumptions that 
the legal system is fair and just and that the actors within that system act in a good way. And the myth is if anything goes wrong, it's a bad apple. And I really started to chafe at that phrase. I kept being told, oh, this is an isolated incident. This is just one bad apple. But this has happened again and again. And what does that mean? And that means that there's a system at play here. And it's not individuals acting badly. It's people who feel comfortable doing so in a system that allows it to happen. That's one of the elements of feedback I got was that examine the system of racism and not just individuals. And in that decade, in the 2000s, I mean, people were very uncomfortable to talk about racism and wanted it to be in the sphere of the individual. I decided to do my master's degree while I was editing, and that really influenced how I approached the film because I was learning about how colonialism works in relationship to racism and how colonialism is embedded in our system and, and continues to treat Indigenous people as though they're not human. That helped frame how I wanted to tell the, the film and without hitting people over the head with it, you know, it was just like, this is what happened. And this is not just one or two bad apples. This is a system that protected itself and protected what those people did. People appreciated that, that it was a film that looked at what had happened in that way. You mentioned there about the, the justice system and the systematic use of the justice system here in Canada and how it works. In your most recent film, we do look at the justice system, in particular with the Colton Bushi case. For our listeners who may not know what happened in the case, can you tell us what happened? When my brother was shot on August 9th, I was dancing at a powwow, and my cousin comes up to me before I dance with tears in her eyes, and she said that Coco had died. So on August 9th, 2016, Colton and his girlfriend, her relative, and a couple of acquaintances spent the day together. It was hot summer day. And they went swimming, they were drinking, they were just being young people out on a summer Sunday. And they had car trouble. Colton was sleeping in the back seat along with the two women and the two young men. They drove into a farmyard earlier, did some mischief, left, and then their tire was on the rim. So they pulled into the yard of Gerald Stanley. And he was known in the area for being a mechanic and fixing vehicles. So they pulled in. One of the young men got out and jumped on a parked quad. And not far away in the farmyard, Gerald and his son Sheldon were fixing a fence and saw the young man jump on the quad. Sheldon Stanley immediately started yelling and running towards them, and so did Gerald. And whatever they said scared the young men. They jumped back in the vehicle. They backed up. As they were backing up to leave, Sheldon Stanley smashed their front windshield with a hammer. And Gerald Stanley kicked their taillights, continuing to yell. And at that point, Gerald ran into his shed to go get a loaded handgun. Now, with the with windshield smashed, the young people try to get out of the yard. And they're only on one rim. And they uh, run into a parked vehicle and come to a stop. Whatever is being said to them, to those young men, motivates them to leave the vehicle and run as fast as they can out of the yard. They remember two shots being fired. And not very long after, Gerald Stanley shot Colton in the back of the head at close range. He argues that it was a miraculous hang fire. 
didn't mean to pull the trigger. There were, you know, a number of of reasons he put in the defense, but Colton was killed instantly, and the gun was very close to the back of his head. This film clearly comes out of tragic circumstances, and it follows the aftermath and the case of it. What made you want to make this film, and what was the process behind it? I knew Colton's sister, cousin, Jade Tatusis, before. She's married to my cousin, and I had seen her notice on her social media about losing a family member. And then as the days went on, it became clear this was something to pay attention to. The police, the RCMP, issued a press release that prefaced and focused on what they called an attempted theft by the young people and only mentioned the fact that Gerald Stanley had shot Colton in the middle of the second paragraph. And this is the press release that goes out to the media. The media focus on the theft. All of a sudden, this ugly, hateful social media comment comes in saying Colton got what he deserved, that Gerald Stanley should have shot them all and not left witnesses, that he's a hero. And so all this whole rhetoric around rural crime started coming in. It was chilling. I'm driving on rural roads with my nine-year-old son and my nine-year-old nephew. And I kept looking at them in the rearview mirror. And I'm like, how are you going to get looked at when you're 13, when you're a teenager, when you're a young man? People always say, oh, it's the backwoods. People, It's not. It's people living in Saskatoon. It's people living in Edmonton. It's people living amongst us who are celebrating a young man's death, a young Indigenous man's death. And I just thought, where are we going in the prairies? What direction are we going? And so I was just originally going to write about it from an academic point of view and sort of layer in the history and layer in my own personal response. But I was urged to think about making a film. And after talking to Jade and meeting Debbie, I decided that I was going to follow this family as they attempted to get justice. And in the film, your son is kind of a parallel character throughout the film as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that decision to make that part of the film? I've been asked to put myself in my films from the beginning, and I've always resisted. I've always felt that the story I was telling, I'm telling it as the director, but I don't need to be in it. Because I felt so strongly as a mother in this case, it occurred to me you know, that I could talk about that in a very personal way. But the fact that I was adopted into a farm family and I grew up on a farm and I grew up around guns and I grew up with the respect for what a gun can do ingrained in me. I tell the story, I can remember, you know, I grew up a child of the 70s and 80s when people still got spanked and I remember getting a spanking because I'd pointed my toy gun at my brother because my family wanted me to understand what a gun can do. I think I'd always assumed that that was a universal rural value. And this case made me have to rethink that. And I thought that I could talk about that in in an interesting way, using myself in the film. In the film, there's certain parts of the storytelling that you use animation to illustrate uh, historical perspectives. What was the decision behind the choice to use animation? I've said this many times that there are real gaps in especially, you know, my generation and older 
around knowing the history of this place and knowing the colonial history and knowing the colonial violence that Canada was founded upon. And when I grew up, it was always like, you know, at least we weren't as bad as the U.S. and we did things benevolently. And is it benevolent to starve people to death? Right. And I remember when I first learned that, I'm like, my ancestors were starved to death. I'm descended from survivors of a starvation policy and a purposeful one done by John A. Macdonald, you know, who almost won top Canadian. These are the leaders and the terrible policies that were legal, but were, had nothing to do with justice. You know, when I was originally thinking of writing about the film, that was the connection I wanted to make. And so when I decided, okay, I'm going to follow the family and they're going to be the f- main focus of the film as a mother, as a sister, as family members, trying to navigate this system that might be legal, but isn't necessarily just to understand that this is happening within the context of previous injustices, previous perversions of a legal system where the eight warriors were hung without representation without a real trial by a judge who was vindictive and eight men lost their lives in that and that happened right in the same territory where Colton was killed. Now the film premiered about a year ago at Hot Docs and it was also the opening for the film festival. Take me back to that moment when you were at Hot Docs and you showed it for the first time to a public audience What did it feel like and what was the reaction like? Well, we had insisted, and the festival was good at at helping us with this. It was the first time that an Indigenous film opened the festival. And we wanted to have prayer. We wanted the family of Colton to be present. And we worked with the festival and the NFB and others to find the resources to bring his mother, his sisters, his brothers, his uncle, the lawyer, a support person for them. Uh, My son and nephew came. Yeah, you know, we were nervous. It was our first public screening, what the reception would be. We didn't really necessarily know what the audience was going to be like. So there was a lot of fear, I guess. You know, it's that little feeling in your stomach, right? Like what's what's going to how is this going to be? You know, it was really overwhelming. We we came up on stage after the screening was done. It was sold out. I think there's 6 or 700 people in the theater and they started a standing ovation. And it just it went on and on and on. And I I've been in situation I've witnessed standing ovations. I've had a few prior to that. They last a minute or two, and then people want to hear from the people on the stage. It didn't end. It was really something. It was really emotional to for the family especially to feel seen and heard after going through a process where they were ignored. There were so many attempts to silence them. So, yeah, it was really powerful. So for moments like that for you, especially as a, a filmmaker, a lot of your films focus around identity how does it feel when you get that sort of validation that you are being seen and heard as a, a Cree woman? I don't know if I've ever prioritized my own self being seen and heard. 
one of the things I realized in the early days of my career is that there are so many of our people who, who are not seen and heard, who are going through these situations directly. And I thought the same thing with Two Worlds Colliding. I thought about the families of these deceased men and the media was terrible. They focused on addiction and, you know, all of the following all the stereotypes and rarely ever stopped to say, like, he was a, a loving uncle. He had a sense of humor. He went home all the time because he loved his family. And, and I just wanted, through the process of the film, to be able to give someone like late Lawrence's family the opportunity to be heard. I grappled with the decision to put myself in the film because it's not ever been my goal to be famous, to be recognized. I just always wanted to bring my experience in this world, bring my whatever skills I've met, I've learned from mentors and teachers, from the education I've gotten. How do I create these stories where people can be seen and heard? For me, it's actually uncomfortable <laughs> to be. I, I have, I've had to learn to figure out how to be okay with that, that that's part of it. So I'm still ongoing, <laughs> figuring out how that works. Well, I was speaking with one of your longtime collaborators, uh, Bonnie Thompson, who was a producer from the NFB based here in Edmonton at the Northwest studio. She was a producer on uh, Nipa Wista Masuin, We Will Stand Up. And she said the experience of working with you on projects, it was such a profound experience. That's how she described it. She really took a lot away from the experience because it was a different perspective than what we're used to when we see these colonial perspectives. How does that make you feel to hear that sort of feedback? I, I, really, I really love Bonnie. I didn't realize until last year that she was a new producer when we started on Two Worlds Colliding. It, it never occurred to me that she was maybe only two or three years in. She'd been at the film board before, but was, was a newer producer. I didn't know that. <laughs> but Because I, I learned a lot from her. She's definitely been a part of my three bigger projects, and I'm glad. And, it, and I, I hope that, that people's experiences of watching the film makes them think about the things they think they know or, the, you know, or, or maybe figuring out realizations that there's things they don't know. However they come to the project, right, that it's a learning experience. I am an educator, and I do that with my work at the university and with my films, I mean, I hope people learn things, but I'm, I'm really just trying to tell a story and provide space for people to tell their own stories and do so in a way that, that takes people on that storytelling journey, right? In the, in the 98 minutes or 79 minutes or however long it is, they're going to come away with something they maybe didn't have before. For filmmakers like yourself, how important is that element of collaboration? And not only that you learn something new, but potentially even gain friendships from your collaborations? I'm constantly working with the producer and bouncing ideas and the people, the crew who come in. I mean, I have a very sort of open style of directing where I want input and I want thoughts and I want reflection from the crew. They're not just there to record the sound. They're listening for me. They're another set of ears. They're the cinematographers or capturing the visuals but but they're also potential they're also listening and thinking about the story and I I've often had really profound questions come from my cinematographers because I'll say is, is there something you're thinking about that I'm not covering and I really 
want to have that open atmosphere. And same with the editors that I work with. I don't feel like it's my vision or my, you know, I, I do feel it's, it's a collaborative thing. You know, I, you do form relationships. My, my DP and, and co-producer, George Hoopka, I mean, we started on Two Worlds Colliding. And I didn't have a lot of experience then, right? I, I had been an assistant director, a production coordinator, a PA. I carried the tripod, you know. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of directing experience. And George was so generous and, and collaborative in how he worked with me that I felt heard and I felt respected even if I was using the completely wrong term for something he would always say but you can explain your vision and then it's up to me to figure out what that is what filter I use what lens I use you know I'm not, I'm more of a feeling sort of see the whole picture focus on the story I really appreciated that about him and so there's a trust there right and and same with Bonnie you know we and my producer, John Montez, who came on after Bonnie retired, we build trust, we build a relationship, which means that it creates a place for me where I feel safe to go, I'm going to have this idea. And it may or may not work, but I have this idea and I feel safe to like, let's try and work it out. And sometimes it works. I'm getting better as a filmmaker, so they work out a little more than they used to. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I feel supported in that process it would be a lonely pursuit if you didn't have those relationships. I spent six months in the edit suite with my editor, Hans Olsen, who's a local Edmonton editor and filmmaker. And we definitely created that space of respect and, and safety. But also, you know, we don't always agree on things. But if you have that relationship, you talk through it and come to a place where you're just making the best decision for the film. Meet in the middle type of thing? Sometimes, yeah. What are you working on now? I have a couple of things. I'm still kind of in a recovery process. And, and this happened with Two Worlds Colliding. It was a few years before I could do another film. And Nipuistamasuin came on, actually, Birth of a Family was just finishing. We were doing the rough cut uh, when we started Nipuistamasuin. So they actually overlapped for a very short time. But it was a lot. You know, I didn't have a time to rest after. So that's my focus right now, is mainly resting. I have other projects I want to do. I, my research area academically, I do Indigenous film work, but I also look at Indigenous relationship to the buffalo. So I've been filming and thinking about that for a while and would like to have the time and space to focus on that next. So, yeah, and then I have ideas all the time. Some of them I just put away. Some I give, give to people, I'm like, this would make a great film. Some I'll probably never make, but it's it's a good sign that I'm still having ideas. Tasha, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. I'm Tasha Hubbard, and these are my three tips for starting out in the industry. Number one, when I started, there was no such thing as social media. And I learned that to be very, very present on set, I would just say, put your phone away. And really focus on what's in front of you because you're going to miss things if you don't. Number two is I learned a lot by doing whatever was asked of me. And sometimes I was just carrying the tripod, holding the boom. But then I would take that as an opportunity to really learn, okay, what does this job entail? And what are the things they're thinking about? And what can they contribute? Or what do they contribute to the process? 
And it made me a more thoughtful filmmaker, knowing what was expected of everybody because I'd done some of that myself. So I would say be willing to pitch in and, and learn that. Number three, if you want to be a filmmaker, learn how to be a good writer. I used to be sort of the front line for a producer with people coming with their ideas to pitch and they'd have great ideas and I'd say, okay, we'll write them down. They're like, well, no, it's an idea. And what, you know, it's a great, it's just an idea. I'm like, okay, but you need to write it down. (laughs) I still say is if you can write well, if you can describe to people what your vision is in a way that is compelling and visual and original, you'll have a better chance of getting your film funded. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 13 of Storylines. Storylines is a women in film and television Alberta production that's made possible with the generous support from Alberta's Ministry of Culture, Multiculturalism, and Status of Women. Special thanks to Fava for its support on this production. Thanks very much to this week's guest, Tasha Hubbard. The show's executive producers are Elise Graham, Ava Carvinen, Samantha Quantz, and Teresa Winnick. Shayna Giles is our associate producer and social media coordinator. The original storyline's theme is composed by Aaron Macri and Laura Rabode, and I'm your host, senior producer, and audio technician, Sheena Rossiter. Make sure you tune in every week to get to the latest Storylines episode, where you can hear interviews and get tips from leading women in film and television. You can check us out and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what you heard, please leave us a review. Until next time, follow your storylines. We can't wait to see where they lead.